Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Greetings, this is Paul Holdengraber, your host for the Quarantine Tapes, brought to you by Onassis LA and Dublab. I am thrilled to announce that we have asked various former Quarantine Tape guests to host, during a week, guests of their choice in total freedom. They have absolute carte blanche. This week, I have asked the very great Imani Perry, Professor of African Studies at Princeton University to serve as our host. Imani Perry is an intellectual, a writer, born in Birmingham, Alabama, at the dawn of the freedom movement. She lives the life of the mind through literature, criticism, music, and art. Perry's hallmarks are passionate curiosity, rigorous contemplation, and dedication to the collective we. Her children, Freeman and Issa Rab, she tells me, keep her honest and dreaming. I hope you enjoy this week of the Quarantine Tapes, hosted by Imani Perry. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Um, okay, so Sanford Biggers, the... Uh, I, what would I, I think of you as the perhaps the hardest working artists in art making or some sort of James Brown type <laughs> analogy. <laughs> um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to start by saying um, how much I love your work visually as well as intellectually and emotionally. And I sit with it and it influences my writing and my thinking. Um, you know, this crossroads between imagination and history and social reality and identity and spirit is just, it's really breathtaking. Um, so thank you um, for taking Well, thank you. That is, uh, I think you might have made my day right there. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I, you know, it's, it's um, absolutely all true. Um, and I, I most recently, I've been returning to the work that, that you've done and are doing with quilts literally mm-hmm. um, as artifact as these artifacts that are part of your work and you know that are that are absolutely part of a kind of black American craft tradition um, and you have these this kind of remixing of quilting quilts on quilts three-dimensional geometrical quilts collage quilts quilts as canvases and um, and so, you know, going through um, this body of your work, and I came across this term that you use, consilience. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about what that means for you, particularly in terms of working with these kinds of, of artifacts. Well, wow. Um, yes. Well, consilience to me in this respect, I think of all the different uh, points of valence that happen when using these found in antique pre-1900 quilts because there's obviously a sort of a cultural and african-american cultural affinity that we feel for them but beyond that there's a large america american americana nostalgia 
um, type of feeling that's with them too. So they can be read by many different people, but then it gets into the sort of liner notes of what those reads are. And that's based on people's history and experience with them. Um, I also think there's the consensus between the original makers of those quilts, largely women, usually groups, sometimes individuals, um, sometimes men as well. Um, but the fact that many of them are unnamed till this day, and even in my research, I can only find the you know makers of very few of the quilts because a lot of them were discarded. Um, that when I you know I consider myself collaborating with them to make a palimpsest that transcends generations. So there's this consilience of time there as well because ultimately it becomes a much larger American story. Mm. And within that American story, there's you know lots of footnotes. Mm-hmm. I'd say I, I, I love that sort of con- concept of being in the collaborative relationship with the quilt makers, but something you said, which actually hadn't occurred to me, but that the viewer then is re- reads them, right, according to various histories that they bring to them, which, I, which is really um, fascinating. Yeah, for me, that, that's sort of, um, I mean, I believe I can only control so much. Um, and, you know, my intentions, I lay pretty bare in the work. But beyond that, I can't control how the works are read. And I do put it upon the viewer to take that time to construct their own understanding of the work. And in a perfect scenario, you have two or three people from different backgrounds looking at the work and then discussing it amongst themselves and enlightening each other on their various takes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did you come to this? Because you, I mean, you work in so many um, media. Right, both visually and sonically. How did you come to to quilting? Well, it was an interesting um, sort of coincidence. I was invited to take part in a large exhibition in Philadelphia called Hidden Cities, where a few artists were invited to reimagine places that were, um, you know, historic landmarks that had gone into disrepair or basically forgotten by you know the larger population. And I was doing research at the Masonic Temple, the Mother Bethel Church, which is one of the oldest Black-owned pieces of real estate in the U.S. And it also happened to be a station along the Underground Railroad. And while I was there doing my site visit, they had a small quilting exhibition downstairs, um, which sort of piqued my interest because I was really looking for stained glass um, examples in the churches and even the Masonic Temple. But the quilt started to resonate more with me. And then I went over, uh, I think I was in Temple doing some site you know, visits, and there happened to be another quilting exhibition. And in that one, I read about the supposed um, history of quilts being used as signposts on the Underground Railroad. And that, to me, just opened up a whole new channel because I started to consider these quilts as holding code. And what would it mean for me to then embed another layer of code onto the already existent la- layers of code? That's fascinating. I again, right? Code and 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 um, and language and layering, and it makes me one. I, I mean, I, it makes me want to um, ask you about sort of the broader geographies because, am I correct? You you spent time living in Japan. Is that accurate? Yes, I lived in Japan for three years in the mid-90s. Yeah. Early 90s, actually. And so I, this is a bit of a, a kind of self-indulgent question, but um, I just spent a, a summer in Kyoto a couple of years back, and um, and there were all these things that felt unexpectedly familiar. Um, and in particular, um, it was the relationship 
um, that people had to, to material, to fabric. And, you know, so I would see people hanging clothes on the line, um, sheets in the morning and, it, you know, and, and of course that they're quilting and indigo. And it, it reminded me of aspects of um, my childhood um, when I would, when I was in Alabama and the way that the fabric would be gently eaten away by the washing and still tended to. And, and so that's a long way to ask you about how, you know, you, you, your work is connected very explicitly to African-American culture and history and experience. And it also has this kind of, um, you know, global set of, of, um, of not just influences, but sort of conversations. And so, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing about how that, whether Japan or, or, or just broadly your, um, this sort of, this broad landscape from which you draw shapes your work directly and, and, and whether you kind of explicitly connect it to identity or is it, you know, it's kind of, or if it's organic. Well, I think it's been a distillation of many things. Um, so in addition to living in Japan for three years, I lived in Italy um, for around two years. I've lived in Berlin for a while and uh, Hungary and Salvador da Bahia and Brazil. So uh, international travel and, you know, studying various cultures has always been a very important part of my creative process. But specifically living in Japan as long as I did and being sort of as embedded as I was with, you know, surrounded by several Japanese friends. And some of them were like super hardcore America files. Some of them were hip hop heads, but several of them Rastas and practitioners of old Shinto belief systems, even though they were my contemporaries. And through hanging out with them and, you know, exactly as you mentioned, watching Indigo get prepared. Uh, a friend of mine's parents owned a kimono shop. So spending time in that kimono shop reminded me of hanging out with my mom as she would go to the various garment districts of Los Angeles and work with uh, her friends to make the newest fashion, you know, make her knockoff version of the, the whole couture that she was looking at in magazines. So there was a tactility and a materiality that um, I really connected with. And the work I made out of that experience was referencing a lot of Buddhist ideas and um, symbols and working with mandalas and, you know, as you mentioned, going anywhere between metal, wood, sand, plastic, and sound to make my work. And then when this quilt moment happened, it was almost as if it was a way of distilling all of those things, which in my opinion, were a little more didactic and, um, the quilts and the used material and working with that was a way of embedding all of that prior knowledge, but without having to sign off and explain every single element. You know what I mean? It was already sort of there. There was so much history and it was universal by default because we're talking about thread. We're talking about clothing, discarded remnants, and every culture has them. So for me, it was a way of really, as you mentioned, just being very international and also being very local and specific. So um, I found it a very good language for the ideas that I was trying to uh, communicate. Do you, does, you can tell me if this is a strange question, but does, do you, is there a kinship between quilting and hip hop for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, cutting, pasting, chopping, screwing, sampling, um, remixing, remaking, um, giving a shout out to the original song, giving a shout out to the original quilt pattern, giving a shout out to the collaborators and makers of a breakbeat or, you know, um, 
a breakdown in the middle of a song for me is the same as you know shouting out this quilt that was made in pennsylvania in 1833 you know what i mean so and, you know, it's fun. I'll get really specific. I think often of uh, the Bomb Squad and Hank Shockley and the producers of Public Enemy and later Ice Cube and how they were making these almost cacophonous um, sonic collages where it was almost too much to comprehend. But that was literally the effect that they wanted to have on the audience, bombardment. And that's before you even heard Chuck these lyrics. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the quilts, the combination, of things is maximalist much like that music was maximalist so and then you know sometimes i change the tone and i go more into a low in theory type of vibe and make it more monochromatic and bring out the stitching so um you know music and hip-hop and the kind of catharsis and rhythm and tonality is key Mm -hmm. it's so interesting that you say that because one of the things that i've always um contended about part of why public enemy was so successful in communicating like this um, kind of profound political messages is actually the sound, right. That, that, that you can't just, that it would it was, it wasn't just the words, but it was actually the kind of emotional register that the sound created. Um, and it makes me think about actually a trip um, a couple of years ago when I went to the legacy museum in Montgomery, right. So that, where there's this trajectory from, slavery to mass incarceration. And it was incredibly crowded that day. There were a lot of tourists and I didn't have a ticket. And the people who work at the museum gave me a pass for local residents, although I was not a local resident. And But I, I couldn't get in the front. And so um, I went around the back because it was so busy. And so I started with a sculpture of yours, um, which is at the conclusion when you walk around the museum, but that was the beginning for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it... Uh, titled Bam for Michael Brown, um, large brown bronze sculpture, a form, there's there's one leg that is, well, has one leg, there's the kind of, it's both glowing, multi-textured, and, um, and has a sense of disfigurement. And I just, can you say something about that piece, and, and in particular this moment, in, in politically and historically, for all of us, around race and um, and the, the 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 rising tide of white supremacy, where that fits in your work. Yeah, so the BAM series um, really came out of a visceral knee-jerk reaction of pain and desperation that I felt one morning when I woke up in Berlin and I turned on my phone and was just inundated by you know, just all these videos of black men or black people being killed and brutalized by the cops. And of course, you know, not a new phenomenon, you know, America's dealt in that trade for 400 years. And, you know, I grew up very aware of that, but now we're at the point where the technology was convergent with the social aspect. And now the world can see that black people were no, weren't just, you know, um, crying wolf, but that this brutality really was happening daily, weekly, monthly, you know, throughout the U.S., And I, you know, had been collecting African figures for a very long time and just as inspirational objects in my studio. And I thought, what could hurt, (laughs) what could make people feel the pain that we feel every time we get these announcements and see the news and have these conversations? And it literally meant taking these objects and covering them in wax, you know, to uh, sort of protect them and protect their power, but then taking those objects to a shooting range and then sculpting them with different caliber weapons. 
And, you know, it's a very violent, very challenging work to make and, you know, challenging to even view. But the idea was to bring that sort of feeling, that pain into the viewer. But it was also acknowledging, and this is partially Buddhist, but it's often, you know, it's very much related to various African um, systems, is the idea of, you know, power objects and objects that are charged. And that process of tanking them and shooting them with bullets and shrapnel, to me, was like making an inkisi, which is, you know, uh, a wooden figure that sometimes has metal shards and nails sticking out of it to show its power. So... I was thinking of it really as embedding it with more metal and bending it with shrapnel to make it an inkisi. So once they were shot, I take the remnants and cast them in bronze. So then there's a transubstantiation, which obviously has a lot of religious implications and spiritual implications. And now they are bronze and fortified and memorializing each victim. And they're each named after a different victim for Tamir for Philando, for Michael. And the one that you saw was the first one and the largest I've done, which was around nine feet. And it was dedicated to Michael Brown. And it's at the end of the museum and on an adjacent wall, you'll see the video of the making of the piece. And instead of just showing straightforward footage, I actually have it going at natural speed and then slowed down and then in reverse. So not only do you see the bullets hitting and exploding the objects, but you see the bullets going in reverse and coming back through the object as the objects become whole again. And there's a lot of metaphors there, one of which is being that this is a cyclical nature that we're seeing this violence. We've been watching this violence for 400 years, and we will still see more of it. But it's also the fact that regardless of how often it happens, we will not you know, be silenced. We will not disappear. In fact, if anything, hopefully the remembering and memorialization of those incidents makes us stronger and fortifies us as a people, not just African-Americans, but Americans to seek justice. I, I think I can say that I mean, my experience in the museum, it functions as um, a power object. Uh, um, uh, the guard at the museum was, was insisting that people stop and take it in, um, not everybody, but, and I thought that was, it, it had a kind of, um, there's one of the pieces that really echoed the the memorial in the sense that there's a kind of, there is a spiritual experience standing before it. Um, and I want, and you talked about having collecting um, uh, African sculpture as a form of inspiration. It also just made me think of your um, your marble pieces, chimeras that are like, and tell me if this is not an apt description, but they have, they're like as though they're, they're elements of West African sculpture, like Alegua statues and also like garlic, Gothic gargoyles. And they have this kind of creamy marble tone in there. So there's something that feels very like kinetic and living about them, but you you look and you see a reference point to um, both classical sculpture and West African sculpture. Is that, um, are those the the reference points? And is that, a kind of paired, I mean, if you compare, is that a kind of paired um, down form of consilience for you or? Well, you know, it's funny because that, that, you know, it's a very fresh project. I'm still doing um, some of those works. And initially it started because, you know, I was living in Rome. I was a recipient of the Rome prize a few years ago, and I was living amongst all these ruins of classical sculptures. And, you know, the way the propaganda, the Western historical, artistic, art historical um, propaganda works is that these were, you know, uh, pure 
spotless white marble pieces. But the fact was, many of them were actually painted and adorned with all kinds of different pigments and colors that have worn off over time, now leaving it as a white marble piece. And the irony of this is, the Romans and the Greeks often used colored marble to depict foreigners um, and barbarians. And you don't find that many instances of it because it was so much more expensive to get colored stone. And that the white stone that we've all learned to be, you know, the pinnacle of Western aesthetics was actually the cheapest and easiest to find stone. So, in fact, it was of less value. But the propaganda has made us sort of look at that as the pinnacle of, um, you know, Western aesthetic culture. So I thought that whitewashing was very interesting. But that's also, um, there's a blackwashing that happens because a lot of the African works that you alluded to were the basis of modernism and cubism. And once the Europeans started seeing reproductions of African sculptures, they ran with it and started creating tons of art forms that have changed the, you know, the way we look at art today, and which is a positive. But the source where many of them saw these objects were from books made by, um, uh, there was one specific book called Neger Plastique, and it had reproductions of African sculptures, but they didn't have the technology to really show all the raffia and the pigments and the beads and everything that was on the African pieces. So they did the same thing. They got rid of them. And now we are stuck with these sort of monochromatic brown and black wooden pieces that everyone thinks is authentic African sculpture. But that's edited, redacted African sculpture. So there's whitewashing and blackwashing. So what I want to do was combine them all and see if we can look at fragmented black bodies with the same type of reverence as we look at fragmented white bodies. So I started to combine them. And, you know, that's the conceptual conceit behind it. But as I started to get into it, the seduction of sculpture itself, which made all those artists do those works in the first place from both cultures, started to peer through. And what you now see is like the gesture and the motions and the kinetic aspects of the body and how I'm connecting those elements. It really goes back to pure, formal, traditional classical sculpture at the end of the day. Um, but all those other um, narratives are embedded in that material. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you're still working on are you working with that in that that vein presently? Yes, yeah, yes. I just um, closed a show at Marianne Boski Gallery in New York where I had around five new pieces, um, some of them weighing as much as a ton or a little over a ton, where I'm doing, you know, and very much like we talked about with hip hop and the quilts, remixes of classical and traditional African and European works. Um, and then combining them to make something that has a life of its own. So they all have their own different attitude and tone and gesture. So even though, you know, we can talk about the series in a conceptual way, each object really does have to be dealt with on its own because they all have their own personality and their own inner narratives. Do you, um, well, actually, you know, in the context of quarantine, um, has that, has it has being in the way we are all are inside um i don't know the word useful is not the quite the right right word but how have you navigated art making in this strange time um because you have this vast geography in your work and all of these references and then there's a way in which our lives have become kind of closed in has it affected how you work well, it has. It has. It's sort of been a moment to do. I mean, I think everybody, all, all, you know, everybody, not just artists and creators and writers and so on, but we all sort of say, ah, oh, one day I'll have time to do this thing or do that thing. 
And for me, it was always about slowing things down, mm. reading, not making work, like literally forcing myself to not be busy making something so I could have more time to think about what it is I want to make and <laughs> what it is I want to experiment with. So, um, you know, here we are almost a year into it and I've gone through phases of literally making nothing and then phases of constantly working and making small mock-ups and working, you know, with computer programs to develop new pieces, working with various um, fabricators that I usually work with and staying in touch with them. And then starting new bodies of work that are just small and things I can do by myself in a room without any interference. So, you know, it's almost reinventing a creative practice, but also tapping into some of the muscle memory of other uh, projects that I've done. And what about, are you making music? Um, I've been making, a, you know, I, that goes in phases too. So I had around two or three months of making a lot of music and learning some new software. And I've been trading some of that back and forth with, uh, you know, the other members of my band of Moon Medicine. And we're getting ready to um, showcase a little bit of it with a project I'm doing that will open up soon at Rockefeller Center, where you'll see a very large version of one of the Chimera sculptures. And there'll be some virtual reality elements that will show, have some sonic collaborations, some work that I've done with Feral Manch, and hoping to get uh, Michelle and Jay Gocello. We have an outstanding collaboration to do, and hopefully we can make that happen for this, um, along with all the other you know, crew members of Moon Medicine. So there'll be some elements in that. And then towards the end of the year, we're um, pressing a new EP that will literally be a limited edition vinyl uh, collector's edition that will be, um, that will be uh, released probably around September or October or right around the time of Prospect 5 down in New Orleans. Oh, that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really excited about that. Years ago, and I, this just came to mind, Moon Medicine did... A, you recorded a version of Lift Every Voice and Sing, kind of a remixed version of the song, mm-hmm. um, at, which is interesting just in this moment because there's been this sort of revived attention to it um, and even a proposal um, to to replace the Star Spangled Banner with it, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, I'll, I won't editorialize that, but um well, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about that? What that choice um, and how it sort of is connected to to um, I don't know what your vision is of, of of what you're doing in a. I mean, I know this was some time ago, but you know. Well, yeah. I mean, well, the thing about it is, you know, time is not really an issue because you know after you know the reckoning last summer, there were so many people asking about, oh, well, what do you have to say about that, and what does your work have to say about it. I'm like, I've been talking about this for the last 20, 30 years. I don't really have anything new to say. <laughs> you know, I mean? you know culture is just, this moment was going to happen. We all saw this. It's not like it came out of the blue. So, <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, and then Lift Every Voice and Sing. You know, I'm of the age where I grew up singing that right after the Star Spangled Banner in my elementary school. <laughs> so, you know, that song has a personal place to me. But in addition to that, one of the members of Moon Medicine is Andre Simone, who wrote that song with Prince, literally, and was in Prince's band and on the first three albums. So Andre Simone is our bass player. So not only were we playing the song Controversy, we're playing the song Controversy with one of the guys who wrote it and switching it to lift every voice and sing. And that's sort of how Moon Medicine operates as a band. We do conceptual covers. We do a lot of originals, but our covers are always sort of steeped in a conceptual, um, historical and cultural references. So that's how that came about. 
it's so fast. I didn't realize. Yeah, the backing. Yeah, the backing music is controversy. Um, You know, Prince's song "Controversy," Mm -hmm. and we're replacing the lyrics with "Lift Every Voice and Sing." So, yeah, for those who know that when they see it, that you know, it really hits. And that's all. I mean, the other piece about that is it's taking a kind of a sake a song that has a kind of sacred dimension with something that was seen as con- I mean, controversy is literally in the title. But you know, Prince was I remember being like six and seven years old and um, he was a revelation. Right. I mean, a kind of controversial figure. Um, is that deliberate? The original version of controversy, Prince goes into the Lord's Prayer at the end, which mm-hmm. was obviously controversial. A big thing at the time. <laughs> um, when I, you know, put this in front of the band saying, why don't we do controversy? Andre was already giving me a look like, oh, man, I've got such history with that song. And I'm like, I can only imagine. But what if we do it with lift every voice and sing? And everybody's eyes went up and people started laughing and they were like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do that. That sounds crazy. So, um, you know, and in our, you know, the way we see it is sacred music has a lot of forms. And it's a remix, just like quilts. It's bringing lift every voice and sing into a contemporary context. See, and Prince in that the museum, you know, there's all that those different myriad layers of sonic history and music and you know music songwriting history in there. Yeah, can you um I talk about actually the 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 forms you work in because I think you know. It, for someone who is actually recognized as such an extraordinary artist in so many forms is, is somewhat unusual, I think, in part because there's, you know, you have actually continued to experiment with various forms. And one, I mean, I guess um, I want to ask what came first, but also at what point in your life did you know that you were going to be an artist of some sort, right? When was it, when did you feel like the pull that that was the call? for you well the, the pull came really really early um you know i'm a first generation you know rap hip-hop fan you know from i'm i you know i was doing graffiti and break dancing and djing and doing all of that stuff when i was you know a preteen. so um i got busted doing graffiti one day <laughs> and uh got the fear of god put in me and then a few weeks later, I was put into the AP art class at, uh, at my school. So I started doing, you know, oil painting and more traditional <laughs> art forms. So that happened. But bef- even before that, I was already playing piano and I was teaching myself to play by ear. And then when I started listening to jazz, I could no longer keep up with what I was, you know, hearing. So I started painting pictures and portraits of, you know, Mahalia Jackson and Ray Charles and Thelonious Monk and Miles and so on. And, you know, that all got me into the visual arts. And the response that I got for that was, you know, people asking questions, who are these people? And I was teaching, you know, white friends and black friends who all these figures were when we were like 13 or 14. And I realized that this was a valid form of communication and that I somehow stumbled upon it. And I've never turned back since. Wow. Um, well, I appreciate that. Um, I think the world appreciates it. And, you know, the note that you, um, that you ended on reminds me of sort of where we began talking about coding and quilting, that this, it is, it becomes, your work becomes a point of entry and discovery and, um, we are all better for it. 
So thank you yeah. so much. Okay, and stay in contact. And hopefully we'll see each other in person soon. I hope so. Okay. Okay, take care. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. <laughs>